Welcome everyone, this is Dr. Mercola, and today we are joined by Dr. Michael Ruscio, who is a clinical investigator who focuses on gut health. Now, a lot of people are doing that, but he's, he's uh, actually written a book about it called Healthy Gut and Healthy You. And uh, it's a pretty good read, especially, you know, with all the focus nowadays on the uh, highlighting the connections between gut health and your, and your total health. So welcome and thank you for joining us today. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. And uh, you can expand on your background a little bit so people have a better idea of uh, sure. what your clinical experience is and what you're focusing on. And then we can dive into some of the details of the book. Sure. Well, my experience started like many in, in healthcare with my own personal experience. And when I was in college, I was pre-med on route to go into conventional medicine. I actually wanted to be a surgeon, or at least I thought I did. And um, unbeknownst to me, I ended up coming down with an intestinal parasite. Now, I didn't know I had a parasite. I found out later, but the symptoms that really knocked me down were fairly debilitating insomnia. And if anyone suffered from insomnia, they, they just know how that can bring your life to a screeching halt. It's, it's terrible. Uh, very bad insomnia, waking up every 45 minutes, very difficult time going back to sleep. So I, therefore I was tired the next day. I was having brain fog, bouts of depression, no gastrointestinal symptoms. And I got plugged into the conventional system, did some evaluations and all the doctors said that I was healthy. And I was left there with a number of symptoms that had no purported cause and therefore no solution. And so I turned to alternative medicine. And I actually ended up finding one of our mutual friends, Dr. Dan Kalish, and he told me that he thought I had a parasite. And I remember thinking to myself, this guy is crazy. You know, I, I didn't go to Mexico and get food poisoning and then all this started. I had never left the country. I had no digestive symptoms. Um, I was only suffering from this insomnia, brain fog, depression, fatigue. But you know, I figured, what do I have to lose? And so I did this stool test and determined that I had a parasitic infection, an amoeba, actually, a very pathogenic amoeba, amoeba histolytica. And before I had gotten to that point of the diagnosis, I did go online and read about adrenal fatigue and hypothyroid and heavy metal toxicity. And I had done a litany of protocols for adrenal support and thyroid hormone conversion uh, and for heavy metal detox and even testosterone supports. And some of those things helped slightly for a short term, but nothing really gave me the lasting improvements in my health until I determined I had the intestinal parasite and treated that parasite. And, and so that taught me a few very important lessons early on in my career. One is that if you're treating symptoms, you're never going to get any better. And two is that a gut problem can manifest solely as non-digestive symptoms. And we're seeing some of the contemporary literature start to reinforce this. Um, so I went into alternative medicine and, and did my training in alternative medicine. But when I got into alternative medicine, I, I found that there was more hyperbole and more uh, dogma than I was comfortable with. And, you know, not in all cases, but there were these pockets that were, were very kind of unscientific and, and didn't have the academic rigor that I was accustomed to and, and that I felt was important. And there was many things that, that in my clinical practice I was saying, hmm, you know, I don't quite buy this. And, and so this is what's led to some of the clinical research that we've been doing and just my general 
approach, which is open-minded, but also skeptical and trying to find that right balance of, of progressivism, but also making sure that we filter these recommendations through, through a um, process of science to make sure that we're maintaining the therapies that work and excising out of the model therapies that don't work. And, and that's um, you know kind of where I am today in, in clinical practice, helping people with gut issues and, and their manifestations and trying to also determine what therapies we should be using and what therapies probably don't have enough evidence or um, have evidence showing that they're not very effective and therefore should be used. Okay, great. That's a great intro. And I neglected to mention uh, in the beginning that I first met you at PaleoFX this year in Austin, Texas, which was the first time I attended. We were on a panel together and uh, I was really impressed. Dr. Perlmutter was out there too. And I was actually afterwards during the, during the, uh, one of the questions I said, oh, of course, one of the leading researchers here is Dr. Perlmutter, but then I realized after towards the end that you had such brilliant ins clinical insights on this, I felt I, I, I dismissed your knowledge base <laughs> and I apologized to you afterwards. And then you gave me your book and I said, this is great, we got to interview you. So I'm glad we connected. But I want to dive into the book now. And um, there are a number of variables that contribute to longevity, which is one of my passions as I'm you know, vastly approaching my 70s. Uh, but one of them is cellular senescence, another is NAD levels, and the third is inflammation. And they're probably all interrelated in some way, uh, and in some complex molecular biological systems. But uh, you wrote in your book that the digestive system is the leading cause of inflammation in your body. I and mean, your gut gets inflamed, it can cause inflammation throughout your entire body. And and uh, increase many of these inflammatory cytokines like uh, NF-kappa-beta. So why don't you expand on that? Because it's a bit of a, it's, it's quite a bold statement. Sure, and I, I should frame that as it, it could be, it can be one of the leading causes of inflammation in your body. Um, and, and the connecting point to that is the fact that we have the largest density of immune cells in your entire body resides in your small intestine. And this, the small intestine specifically is where we absorb about 90% of our calories and this this selective barrier between the outside world and the inside world. So food essentially travels from the outside world through your body in, in this tube that is your digestive tract. It's essentially the outside world going through your body and part of those, the food stuff should be absorbed into your body. And that very important selective barrier is predominantly your small intestine. This is where 90% of caloric absorption occurs. And so one of the, or the, the, the tool that's used to help prevent things not getting in that we, that we don't want in is your immune system. And so it's a very immunoactive barrier that needs to be selective in letting food in, but keeping pathogens out. And of course, when that barrier is malfunctioning, then you can have particles getting in that shouldn't get in. And then this is where the immune system has to come into play to clean up the mess. And this is likely why we see people who can eat a food and notice after that a symptom of inflammation in the brain, like brain fog or inflammations in the joint, uh, joint pain. And, and clearly people have, and it's been documented in some of the research literature, that you can have neurological, and rheumatological, or even dermatological reactions from foods that don't agree with your gut because of this, this very broad acting inflammatory impact that can be, um, you know, initiated by problems in the gut. Okay. Yeah. And uh, another thing I neglected to mention in my intro for you is that uh, if it's not, it may not be clear to you watching this because uh, Dr. Ruscio's uh, video feed is is not high definition, but he walks the talk 
and he is very healthy. I did not have an opportunity to measure his phase angle, but I believe it's probably in the high eights, if not in the nine. So it's such a pleasure to connect with individuals, healthcare professionals who actually apply what they know, mm. because so many professionals are guilty of what I call FTD or FTI, failure to implement. Sure. And you don't appear to be one of them. So congratulations on that. But I, I wanted to expand on this uh, inflammatory component and take a little side venture and that it's widely known that uh, neurotransmitter serotonin uh, is mostly produced in the gut. And uh, we're thinking, you know, the thought was, well, that's great for, you know, it's eventually converted to tryptophan and the melatonin. So it's great for sleep. So you got to increase that. But it, tend, it turns out, you know, I learned from Dr. Rhonda Patrick that virtually none of that serotonin crosses the blood brain barrier. So I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that. On the, well, know, the fact that, that the serotonin is similar with inflammation, you, know, you got inflammation going to the gut, but does that inf inflammation by extension, uh, translate to systemic inflammation? Yeah, it's a great question. And I don't know if we have all the molecular pathways fully mapped out yet, but what we do fortunately have is the end effect, uh, at least um, in a preliminary fashion, mapped out. And, and this is why, as an example, a recent uh, prospective study was published looking at patients who have IBS and they found that IBS pop, this IBS population compared to healthy controls had higher scores of anxiety, depression, and fatigue. And so there's likely something going on that affects the brain that occurs in the gut. Now, whether it's direct or indirect, I, I don't think we know. And I also don't, I'm not convinced it fully matters, at least not for the purposes of providing people with clinical recommendations. If we were trying to map out the mechanism for you know, research purposes or textbook you know, chapters, that we'd want to know all those particulars. But from a high level, looking at the observations and, and the interventions, it does seem that neurological conditions associate with IBS, and then even more impactfully, uh, there's been at least one, maybe two meta-analyses, and meta-analyses are essentially summaries of what the available clinical trials have to say. So a meta-analysis is very, arguably, the highest level of scientific evidence. We have meta-analyses, one, maybe two, showing that probiotics are effective against anxiety and depression, again, likely because of the gut-brain connection. Now, whether that inflammation in the gut makes its way into the brain or if it's indirect where inflammation in the gut causes a leaky blood-brain barrier and then circulation in, in the body can then get into the you know, um, cerebral circulation. Uh, yeah, I think there's probably debate there and, and we may not have the question fully answered, but there is this connection between the two. I should also mention that the, the serotonin in the gut, it is relevant. And, and this kind of bridges us into maybe something that we'll want to expand upon more uh, in a little bit, which is sometimes to fix problems in the gut, one may have to eat a diet that looks paradoxically devoid of healthy foods, mm -hmm. and most namely a low FODMAP diet which reduces vegetables and fruits predominantly that are rich in prebiotics that feed bacteria, a low FODMAP diet has been shown to actually help resurrect serotonin cell density in the gut as well as peptide YY cells in the gut to make people who have digestive malady more like that of healthy control. So you may be able to resurrect local intestinal serotonin production via a, a paradoxical diet that reduces some of these foodstuffs. And, and serotonin regulates motility and it also regulates pain. So for people who have gas, pain, and bloating, this may be part of the reason why a low FODMAP diet helps with both of those symptoms. 
Okay, just a, a little point of clarification. The uh, the majority of people watching this are not healthcare professionals. So I understand everything you're saying, but many may not. So when we use, we try to be careful with these these terms like IBS. So there's a lot of people that don't understand that IBS sure. is irritable bowel syndrome, not to be confused with inflammatory bowel disease, which a lot of people confuse with. So you had mentioned that earlier. And then the, when you talk about these things, I, I love it, but maybe, you know, peptide Y, you know, most people have no clue what that is. So it's great to mention, but then maybe give a little brief description of what it is, because otherwise people, their head will be spinning and they won't want to listen anymore. <laughs> That's not good. Sure. So, but sure. so we'll skip that for now. You had talked about FODMAP, but why don't we take a step back? Because the FODMAP is a, is a dietary intervention that I want you to go into in much more detail, but it, it, it has a purpose. And it is, as you mentioned, a paradoxical purpose because uh, there are there is this infection called SIBO, which is short for small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, and it's sort of a bugger. Uh, it's in many ways it's similar to the standard case that most Americans have, and that they're metabolically inflexible and they cannot burn fat for fuel. So that's why we recommend this aggressive ketosis, no carb diet for a short term until they be, do become metabolically flexible, and then they and then they integrate normal foods into it. So similarly, you know, it, it's a condition that many people get. And I want you to talk more about it and how they get it and how they know they have it. So if they do, because if they do, it it, it many of the healthy interventions don't work and actually make you worse. So you, this is really a, a, an important point to, to really understand. So I'll let you take it from there. Sure. Sure. And I think that's a great point. And, and, and there's even maybe one preface point I would make, which is, you know, in, in writing the book, I try to make sure to reconcile disparities. And, and I think this is one of the things the healthcare consumer is most challenged by. You go to a vegetarian website and they will show you articles, studies showing that a vegetarian diet can be healthy. And you'll go to a keto website and they'll show you articles showing and documenting that a vegetarian diet can be healthy. And and so the, the challenge is not to say one is better than the other or one is the diet that you should use, but rather trying to you know reconcile, well, why is it that vegetarian can work sometimes and Keto can work sometimes, and how can we help people navigate this landscape in, in terms of perhaps there's a certain subset of people that would do very well on keto, and there's a certain subset of people that may do better on a higher-carb, vegetarian-like approach. And so how can we help guide people to find the intervention or sequence of interventions, like perhaps a ketogenic diet and followed by a more moderate balance of, of macronutrients, maybe like a moderate-carb diet, afterwards, after they've um, obtained some healing? And so for those with SIBO or, or small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, it's, it's a fairly common condition. It, it may underlie, you know, estimates on this vary, but it, some estimates show that it may cause the majority of cases of IBS or irritable bowel syndrome, which is typically constituted by altered bowel function, either constipation, diarrhea, or a mix of the two, and abdominal pain and abdominal bloating. And what happens in this condition, as the name kind of hints at, is you have an overgrowth of bacteria in the small intestine. And what's interesting here is it's, it's not an infection per se, because it's not bacteria that shouldn't be there, but oftentimes it's, it's bacteria that's normal to the system, but it's just overgrown. And, and the analogy I, I use is you have bushes outside of your house. If those bushes overgrow 
uh, were so overgrown that they blocked your windows and, and obstructed you from getting in and out the front door, then that would be a problem. And so you'd want to trim back the overgrowth. You wouldn't necessarily want to rip out the bush and, and completely get rid of the bush, but we want to get the bush back to its appropriate balance. And so in small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, SIBO, that's our goal. And one of the ways we can achieve that goal is by using a diet low in, in FODMAPs, which is essentially just a, a term, FODMAPs just essentially means prebiotics. And, and these are just compounds that uh, feed bacteria. And so prebiotics feed bacteria. Before we go there though, let's go identify maybe some more symptoms and how someone, if they were suspicious that they might have SIBO, how way they would get it diagnosed and what's your sure. favorite test for that? Sure. Well, the, the classical symptoms of SIBO, again, are altered bowel function. Some will have constipation, some will have diarrhea, some will have an oscillation between the two, and then oftentimes also abdominal pain, bloating, or discomfort. However, and this is the, the interesting thing about the gut, we're now seeing small intestinal bacterial overgrowth associate to skin conditions like rosacea, neurological conditions like restless leg. SIBO treatments have been shown to improve rheumatoid arthritis, and there have been a few studies showing an association to either thyroid autoimmunity or thyroid uh, or, or hypothyroidism specifically. So this is where it gets challenging um, because we can't put SIBO just in the digestive box. There may be someone who has a skin condition and a joint condition that is only being, you know, it's only attributable to their small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And, and so I'd, I'd like to maybe paint this perspective for people in terms of how to navigate this. My philosophy is once you've taken some steps to generally improve your diet and your lifestyle, if you're still floundering, I think the next best step for most people, it's not a guarantee, not a panacea, but the next best step would be taking steps to ensure you have optimal gut health. Um, because there's not necessarily one or you know a constellation of symptoms that would say you have SIBO or you have another gut condition, but rather I'd look at it more as a sequencing maneuver. Okay, uh, sort of we're gonna go into the diagnosis and what's your best uh, tips are for yep. diagnosing it next. But before that, I have a quick question for you while I'm remembering it. And that is molecular hydrogen, which I'm sure you're familiar with, I believe is probably one of the best interventions out there for so many reasons. One of the primary ones is it stimulates a molecular pathway called NRF2, which which optimizes your antioxidant response responses from your body. So it's a hormetically induced anti antioxidant. It's not just giving indiscriminately large doses. So, but there is right. some, uh, the reason I, I'm tangenting to, to molecular hydrogen is that, I'm, that there may be only one clinical condition which predisposes molecular hydrogen from being effective, and that is SIBO. And I wonder if you have any experience with that. I don't, and, and with that specific treatment, I, I can't say that I do. Okay, because the, the reason is, is these, these bacteria in SIBO tend to overproduce hydrogen gas. And it may be too much of a good thing is the, is the, is the speculation, but I just never had anyone because uh, this had a lot of GI experience uh, experiment with that. So anyway, that was a tangent. So why don't you head back now to um, the uh, diagnosis of SIBO? Sure. So w regarding the diagnosis of SIBO, a, a breath test is, is arguably the, the best method of diagnosis. So essentially, someone goes through a preparation diet the day before, and then on the day of, they proceed to collect a serial um, number of you know repeat breath samples. And you can do this test with a 
um, solution where you, they, where you drink lactulose before the test or glucose. And there's debate in terms of which one is better. And I think you can really make a case either way. But essentially, someone would do a preparation diet the day before, and then the morning of the test, they drink a solution, either lactulose or glucose, predominantly are, are, are what's used. And then they would collect a repeat breath sample, usually every 15 to 20 minutes for about three hours. And then essentially what we're looking for is the changes in the gas levels on those breath samples can tell you if you have SIBO or if you don't have SIBO. Interesting. Have you ever used lactulose to treat hepatic encephalopathy? I have not. No. Okay. It is a, it's a common, it, hepatic encephalopathy is pretty much almost an end-stage disease, a liver disease right. that uh, some people get, primarily alcoholics. But it's interesting, lactulose tends to turn around. They go into a coma and they come out of it when you give them lactulose. And Almost everyone who uses it clinically has no idea why it works, but we know the hmm. answer. Why? Do you know why now? It increases um, hydrogen gas. <laughs> well, I mean, what I'm thinking of there is I know there's been a number of trials showing that with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, various probiotic cocktails have been shown to, to improve that condition and also lower liver enzymes. So there's definitely this, this gut-liver connection. I just hadn't heard of that, that one treatment specifically. It's very yeah, interesting. In fact, it, it, it may sound speculative, but they've done pretty interesting research where they <clears throat> actually kill the lactul the hydrogen producing bacteria in the gut and then administer the lactulose and it doesn't work. So they, they pretty much. I mean, that. Uh, yeah, that makes sense because yeah, they're, they're essentially using a really powerful prebiotic in that case to, to feed the bacteria. It's like using a probiotic. Yeah, and it's safe. One, yeah, yeah. Interesting. All right, so uh, the next step is the treatment. And you had started to discuss that, the FODMAP, which is a sort of counterintuitive because the diet, and I guess you, you definitely want to focus on what it excludes because it excludes a lot of healthy foods. It, it does. And, and, and this is, I, I think, unfortunately for the healthcare consumer, one of the most defeating um, you know, things to go through where let's say someone has you know, a fair array of symptoms, uh, especially digestive symptoms. Let's say someone is fatigued, they've got some joint pain, they have loose stools and they have bloating. And they say, okay, I'm gonna go on a lower carb kind of paleo diet, lots of vegetables, lots of fruits, some healthy meats uh, and, and fats. And a few weeks in and they say, I feel worse. Mm -hmm. And I understand how defeating that can feel, but what can happen here is someone is inadvertently eating higher levels of these FODMAPs and they're actually, you know, they're actually feeding the problem that underlies some of their symptoms. The problem in this case presumably is small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. It's not to say that small intestinal bacterial overgrowth is the only cause, but you know, we're talking about that one right now and it's fairly common. And so they eat more broccoli, more asparagus, more cauliflower, uh, more apples, uh, right? And, and so there, there's a number of, of these healthy foods, uh, avocados also, um, that one would eat more of on a lower carb or, or paleo type diet. But if that's not the right maneuver for your gut, then that may make you feel worse. And, and, and the analogy that I, I use in the book is one of ecosystems. We, we have various different ecosystems. We have rainforests all the way through your uh, you know, semi-arid desert-like regions or, or climates of Northern and, and Southern California. Now, it, it'd be foolish to say, well, rainforests are so beautiful that every ecosystem should have the same amount of rain that a rainforest has. Because if we took that amount of rainforest rain and then 
force that into a semi-arid desert-like climate, that would be decimating. It would cause mudslides and, and a lot of destruction. So it's not to say that every ecosystem needs the same inputs to thrive. And so every gut you know, is an ecosystem. And every gut, you know, does not require the same inputs to thrive. So this is one case where that ecosystem require a reduction, at least temporarily, higher FODMAP foods in order to allow things to rebalance. And so that can be step one for people is to use either a, a low FODMAP diet. And, and low FODMAP, you can do that plus or minus the rules of, of paleo, meaning if you're going to do a, you know, a, a paleo low FODMAP diet, you'd have no grains and you'd have no dairy. Uh, and some people may prefer that or some people may prefer the standard low FODMAP diet, which allows some grains. And, and there's a time and a place, that I think, for each. But that's, that's where you can start. Lots of other questions now. Grains, because obviously that's a big issue for uh, – a clinician who's focused on the GI, on GI system, and you've got celiac disease or gluten intolerance. And of course, there's a, a wide variety of tests that can screen for that. And I'm wondering, in your experience, well, first of all, if you can comment on the prevalence from, from your exposure, what is, what is uh, more common? Is it SIBO or gluten intolerance? I mean, you're asking a very contentious question right now. And, and, what I'm starting to think is that gluten intolerance, and, and specifically the term that's used is non-celiac gluten sensitivity, and, and we should be careful with our language here because there's, there's celiac, and there's no real debate on celiac. That, that answer has, has been vectored. Um, it, it's more so this, I think I have a problem with gluten, but I don't have celiac, right? That, that's this realm of gluten sensitivity or non-celiac gluten sensitivity, as, as it's also termed. And... Yes, you know, that is a legitimate condition and there is, there are at least four, if not five placebo-controlled clinical trials that have affirmed that. So yes, but uh, I, I fear that we're starting to conflate everything underneath the window of non-celiac gluten sensitivity and we're learning that there may be other things that are causing these reactions that we're attributing to the grains or, or to the gluten. And the two most common would be FODMAP sensitivity and the other would be histamine intolerance. Mm -hmm. And why this is why this is important is because if, if we were living, you know, in in an overly idealistic situation, then we could just wave a wand and say, okay, you're gonna go grain-free, dairy-free, low FODMAP, low histamine, low carb. But when you actually have to do that, <laughs> things become much more challenging. And what I have been seeing in the clinic is patients coming in afraid of food. They read about gluten. Gluten's bad. They read about FODMAPs. FODMAPs are bad. They read about dairy. Dairy is bad. They read about histamine. Histamine is bad. And they come in afraid to eat anything. And some of these patients are literally making themselves sick because they're trying to adhere to two, three, four, five diets rules all at once. So this is really pushed me to kind of open my mind a bit on grains. I used to be much more anti-grain, but noticing that some people had bigger dietary battles to fight, like FODMAPs and histamine. So if they have to really focus on avoiding FODMAPs and histamine, we've got to give them some room somewhere else. And so for some of these people, giving them some room to bring back grains into their diet actually is quite helpful. Now, what does the research literature say? Well, I'm sorry, go ahead. Before we go there, because you opened up a can of worms with histamine, which I don't think most people understand is, but I'm wondering if it's histamine in the foods or if it's actually mast cell activation that's producing histamine. 
Well, it's probably a combination of both. It's probably a combination of both. Yeah, it's probably the histamine in the food, and it's also the way that these foods interface with the immune system. Okay. All right. So, and then histamine is from your perspective. So um, histamine is a, a, a neuroactive compound, and it also is a, a signaling molecule for the immune system. And again, kind of like the low FODMAP diet, the low histamine diet can seem paradoxical. And I actually personally had a problem with this, and it's part of how I opened my eyes to it, where foods that are fermented, um, not all, for, not not only, but fermented foods are typically high in histamine. So your kimchi's, your sauerkraut, your kombuchas, your your kefirs, those are going to be higher in histamine. Also, avocados and spinach and cured meats, um, and many fishes are high in histamine. And so I was eating at one point. I call it the lazy man's paleo diet. I'd have a you know can of tuna with an avocado, and that's low carb. It's quick. It's easy. I'd wash it down with some sauerkraut and a kombucha. And then mm -hmm. at lunch, I'd have spinach along with maybe some salmon. Uh, and so a lot of the convenient paleo low-carb foods are fairly rich in histamine. And I remember very distinctly being at my desk working one day, a beautiful sunny day, no reason for me not to be happy. And I had this fog over me, and I was very irritable. And I was saying to myself, what the heck is going on? And it, it took me a couple of days to put it together, but I was eating a high histamine food at every meal. And I was just saturating my system with histamine. And I just needed to make a simple change of spacing out those high histamine foods. And all of that fog, all of that irritability went away in a matter of literally hours after I you know, first put that together. So it, it sounds kind of complicated, but when you boil it down, there's really two things you have to achieve. If you're, if you're trying to sort out the histamine piece. One, find a diet that works well for your gut and does not irritate your gut. And, and for a lot of people, that might be a lower carb paleo type approach, potentially with a reduction on FODMAPs. And then at the, at the same time, reduce your dietary histamine intake. And there's a, there's, you know, a very easy guide to follow of high histamine foods to avoid and lower histamine foods to focus on. And the other nice thing about this is it only takes usually about two weeks to notice if one of these diets is working for you. And this is what I walk people through in the book. Okay, start here. We'll give this diet, diet a, a two-week trial and then reevaluate. And you might be done with diet at that point, or we may have to make a tweak and give that another two weeks. So it, it doesn't take long, but it's a series of self-experiments to see what works best for your system. And then once we have you feeling well, we know we've gotten to the diet that's, that's the best for your unique gut ecosystem. Do you ever use uh, genetic analysis and evaluate polymorphisms to help fine-tune your system? And the reason I mentioned that is I just had it done recently. Uh, I think they evaluated my 23andMe data, although there are better analysis now. <clears throat> and I turned out I was double homozygous for a pretty severe gluten SNP, which is KIA 1199. And boy, I mean, I didn't notice any symptoms, but it's very clear I should not have gluten just from that uh, polymorphism and genetic defect. So I'm wondering if you ever are using that. I've been following the literature on, on gene testing, and I do not consider myself a gene expert, but from what I've seen, I have not been impressed. Um, mm. Probably, probably the so the, the, and there, there's a few very key contradictions, and, and so and there's an argument that underlies this also, which is some um, clinicians look at mechanisms 
and they try to say, well, if this happens in a cell, then we should do this in humans. And that's all fine and good, but what I think the, the most sure metric is, is looking at the outcome data. So mm -hmm. first you have this mechanistic theory and you say, well, if we see this happening in the cell, that tells us people shouldn't do this. And, and so an example um, could be, um, you know, genes for insulin sensitivity could predict someone who needs to be on a low carb diet, right? And just so happens that Christopher Gardner just published a diet fits trial where they tried to custom tailor based on someone's genetics, either a healthy low carb diet or a healthy high carb diet. And they essentially found that the, the genetic testing did not provide any benefit in, in terms of outcome. There was another trial looking at APOE4 polymorphisms trying to predict their macronutrient intake. And you know if a gene-based diet would lead to better markers of cardiovascular health, and, and albeit I think some of the markers are, are somewhat contestable, again, they did not show that the gene testing predicted outcome. Further yet still, um, there was a study, a large study done in Asia, giving folic acid to patients who had MTHFR polymorphism, and they showed a 30, I believe it was a 30% reduction in stroke in giving people with MTHFR polymorphisms folic acid. Now, you know, that was a folic acid deficient population, so that may skew the data, and they, they may have showed that if someone had two polymorphisms rather than one, the effect was less. So that, you know, there, there may be some wiggle room there for making the argument of those with the MTHFR polymorphism should only have a, a you know, a folate well, rather than a folic acid. It may also indicate a flawed interpretation or uh, application of the information because, you know, who I don't know, you, you'd said folic acid, but you don't want to give folic acid with someone with MTHFR, you want to give them folate, uh, specifically methylated folate. And uh, well, that's, I mean, that's a theory, but you know, yeah. in this study, they, they uh, did give them folic acid. You know, methylated folate can increase mTOR, it activates mTOR. Yeah, that's many people don't know that. So, you know, it, it's, it's not that the implementation is wrong necessarily, it's just maybe incomplete. And once you see a bigger part of the picture, you know, we'd be able to better apply it. But, uh, you know, I can think of one of my passions is EMF sense EMF and the dangers it does to our biology and the pretty well accepted theory is through voltage gated calcium channel receptors and it turns out you can get polymorphisms for that and uh, people who have these polymorphisms turn out to be the canaries the ones who are very sensitive to EMF so it seems to be a pretty mm -hmm. good predictor for in that mm -hmm. subset of people so I think there I think there's great value to it it's just that Sometimes the implementation is flawed, you know, it's just we don't because we yeah. don't know the whole picture. That's the problem. I, I agree. And so I, I remain open, but also cautious. And, and I guess the main reason I remain cautious is, and to put it really plainly, what I see is people chasing down these still somewhat theoretical gene tests, yet there are some fundamental tried and true therapies sure. that are completely that overlooking it. Yeah. And that, and that actually happens way more than you would think. People jump right to these exotic tests. And in the gut, and, and some of these, you know, gut bacterial mapping tests have pretty close to zero clinical utility, yet people will spend a lot of money and years trying to treat those only to find their way into our office. And when I go through their history, they've overlooked four or five fundamentals, 
we walk them through a few of these fundamental, you know, tried and true treatments, and they feel great in a matter of months. And so it is a legitimate issue. I don't mean to be anti-testing, but no, no, you, know, you have it. to use them at the right time and place. Yeah, I mean, yeah. actually, that's a more uh, cost-effective strategy also because you, know, you try to make you pick up your books. And I always be believe that books are one of the best values you can get because for literally $10, $20, you can pick up four or 500 pages of information that took someone a few years to write and hundreds and hundreds of hours to compile in a good portion of their right. life and you get it for you know, it's crazy. I mean, literally pennies. It's unbelievable. Yeah. When yeah. I really learned that, you know, my book took me about three years to write. There's just under a thousand medical references. And it was a reflection of years and years in clinical practice, trying to give someone the easiest to follow storyline and then an action plan to get them well. And I said, $34, gosh, it seems like this should cost thousands of dollars. But And some of these books do like t textbooks or, um, Scientific books. I mean, they do cost hundreds of dollars because their market isn't that big, and you, you know it's the same logic. I mean, they put a lot of time and effort and energy to put it together. But anyway, the point is that most of these books are far less expensive than one test, right, and exactly. probably provide you with an enormous, uh, a high likelihood of getting some some likely some percentage of improvement. So, good, better place to start first. Hundred uh, percent. I like that strategy. So um, let's see. Oh, you talk in the book about acid. Uh, and actually, one of my early mentors, uh, Dr. Um, Jonathan Wright, who's a major pioneer, I'm sure you're aware of. Uh, sure. And he has long been an advocate of what you're talking about in the book, and that most people who have uh, ulcers or acid reflux have too little acid, not uh, not too much, and are put on these proton pump inhibitors and and antacids, uh, and it actually makes the problem worse. And he's a big fan of uh, tests. I don't think you uh, maybe you put it you had wrote about it in a book, but I don't remember reading it. it was the Heidelberg test? Mm -hmm. So where they swallow this capsule and they measure actually measure the pH as it go along for a diagnosis. I think it's a little bit excessive and maybe unnecessary because you can empirically treat it for a lot less and find out. <laughs> so why don't you talk about that? Because that's a really common problem. And I think antacids, if I'm not mistaken, are one of the most commonly used over-the-counter drugs. And when I, I, if, if I was a pharmacy apprentice before I went to medical school, and I can when those drugs, I was an apprentice when they came out of the market, and they were so restricted. This is like, uh, it wasn't Xanth, it was cimetidine, Tagamet was the first one. Mm -hmm. And they had precautions on there. You could not use them for more than two weeks. Prescribed mm -hmm. for two weeks. That was it. Mm -hmm. And now you can go on them forever over the counter. <laughs> It's crazy. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. And people do. Yeah. So uh, there's there's a few important nuances here, which is, you know, I don't completely agree with Wright, but I don't think he's wrong either. And, and so there, there's a little bit of a, there's a little bit of a nuance. Um, and and I and I will say that you know we we did fact check some of uh, Wright's references, or I should say, I fact checked them, and. You know, some of his his references, what what he quoted them as saying and what they actually said didn't match, uh, and 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 so essentially he's well, he makes the theory. Someone's got to yeah. do it. Yeah, I mean, well, I, I I try to be very careful and very discerning, and I and I've learned that there are a lot of 
false truths circulating out there. And the only way that we update false truths is to fact check those. Mm -hmm. um, and so essentially he makes one of many pauses, but one is that low acid cause a relaxation of the sphincter in the lower throat. So if there's not enough acid, the sphincter opens up. And if you have more acid, it since it's an acid sensitive sphincter, it contracts. The references he quotes actually show the opposite, where they actually showed increased lower esophageal sphincter tone after acid suppressing medication. So um, I, I, that mechanism I don't think is, is correct. Is it to say that the therapy of, of supplemental ash should be thrown out the window? No, but I don't think that mechanism is correct. Now, but there are a few important nuances here, which is not everyone has low acid and like the medical system thinks, not everyone has high acid. Um, and so you can look at context to help determine, are you someone who should be on supplemental acid or not? Because that's a question we're trying to answer, right? Should you be on it or should you not be on it? Well, right. so when, when you look at um, the percentage of people that have documented ulcers, and you know, I would argue that ulcers are, are more so associated with high acid than, than low acid. I think that's a little bit contestable, but 6.5% of the population has documented ulcers. If we juxtapose that with 2% have documented low stomach acid, we see this picture starting to emerge that there may actually be more people out there with high stomach acid than there are people with low stomach acid. However, there's an important nuance in context that helps you navigate this, which is if someone has a history of anemia or if they have an autoimmune condition, then their risk of low stomach acid is anywhere from five to 50%. Now, it's, it should be careful to say it doesn't mean that 50% of people with anemias or will have low stomach acid, but you have a range from 5 to 50. Now, age can also help you determine where you may fall in this range if you have a history of chronic anemia or an autoimmune condition. And essentially, the older someone is, the more likely they may have somewhat impaired secretion of acid, so they may have low acid or lower acid, and they may do better with acid supplementation. Um, so there's definitely some nuance there, but it's also important to bear in mind that not everyone you know, does better with acid. Clearly people who do worse from stomach acid supplementation, and I, I talk about this in the book, and I part of the, the subset do worse with supplemental acid production are people who have immune reactivity and this, this kind of food reactive um, and, 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 and histamine reactive um, sort of syndrome present because we do know that histamine stimulates stomach acid. This is why there's a, a literally a drug class, your H2 agonist, uh, your H2 antagonists, um, like your, your pepsids, uh, that actually block histamine receptors, that they block the histamine 2 receptor, and that actually lowers stomach acid. So there's definitely a subset of people who fall into this reacting the food and, and histamine intolerant and that stimulate stomach acid production who giving them acid will likely make them worse and and the but the the answer there is not blocking acid the answer is trying to remove the offending factor that's stimulating acid production and there is evidence showing that a low FODMAP diet, coming back to that, can lower histamine eightfold. There's a number of people who likely have noticed that grains bother their, their reflux or dairy bothers their reflux or maybe certain nightshades, you know, coffee and chocolate also are, are some foods that can be problematic. So just some simple observations of what your dietary triggers are 
can remove the stimulus that's causing you to overproduce acid. I should also mention further yet still that there seems to be this, this circular reference game in natural medicine where there's only been a handful of studies done on supplemental stomach acid, hydrochloric acid or your, or your betaine hydrochloride. And these are from like 1960. Um, and there's not really any contemporary or any good contemporary research with these uh, supplemental acids. I remain open to them, and I, I do think there are some people who can benefit from them, but I think they're probably more so the minority than they are the majority. So it's you know it's important to keep all this in mind um, because if someone's taking something that's not helping them, but they've been indoctrinated into thinking that they should, they could they could be a wasting money, but b damaging their system. Um, and there's also the piece of enzymes, but you know I'll, I'll stop there if you want to go yeah, over yeah, acid and deep. Talk about enzymes and bitters too next, but I want to finish this discussion up, especially since we were talking about the the acid, obviously the antacids, the H2 blockers, and the proton pump inhibitors, which are they available over the counter now. The proton pump inhibitors, probably, or, or they're not. I don't know that PPIs are. I know that the H2 okay, H2 has been around for a long time. Okay, yeah. so the proton pumps are still prescriptions. So as a result, many, many people are on them. I think they're one of the most commonly used over-the-counter drugs. Right. So, and we've long discouraged people from doing that to the point where if they're, because it does, it is like really the perfect drug from a drug maker's perspective because it doesn't do a damn thing to cure the illness and it treats the symptoms which actually, and once you go off of it, once you're on it, it makes it worse. So it's right. just like perfect for that. You know, it's, it, you're, you're like geared to be on it for years and years and years. So we advise a weaning schedule to go to a less strong one. Like uh, if you're on a prescribed proton pump inhibitor to go down to a Zantac or Tagamet or Renitidine and then gradually lower the dose to get all off of it over a few weeks or so. And I'm wondering if you would agree with that or have any alternative practical strategies. I do, and it's funny that you know I'm, I'm working with this one patient right now who really needs pentoprazole. It, it's a PPI, and mm -hmm. she's had a hell of a time getting off of it. Uh, so I do have some thoughts on that, but just there, there is one I think common in defense of PPIs. They do show a 80 to 90 percent cure rate for ulcers when used for four to eight weeks, and and so I think it's reasonable if someone has a fairly progressed ulcer to document. Yeah, a documented ulcer, right? Not not presumed, um, and especially you know if they they need some instant relief. I'm not opposed to using that as a short term healing mm -hmm. intervention in conjunction with other tools, right? The way uh, they were designed to be used, right, right, right. But absolutely to your point, if someone has reflux and the PPI is a long term solution, that's not a good solution at all, and it opens the door for bacterial overgrowth and potentially for there's there's tumor growths that have been shown. You know the the um, the result or, or the potential malignancy of those tumors has yet to be defined, but it may increase the risk of tumor growth, increase bacterial overgrowth, increase osteoporosis, increase malabsorption. So a good long-term fix, but in the short term, I think they can provide some utility. Um, but we want to try to find the underlying cause of that hyperacidity, of that erosion. So you know, in, in the short term, I, I can see them being helpful. Now, what can someone do if they're having reflux or ulcers? Uh, and and they're trying to wean themselves off. Perfect. Well, you asked uh, the question. That was going to be my next question. Yeah, <laughs> that's good. Um, so it's important to try to find what those underlying factors are. And and so for some people, they 
may and and and, and so there's there, there's a, a couple different diets people can try in the research literature they're known as either four six or eight food elimination diets and so you can either start with four food elimination or a six food or an eight food but essentially these are all kind of encapsulated in either a paleo or an autoimmune paleo diet right and it just depends on how you want to come at this if you want to be aggressive you can go all the way to the eight food elimination or an autoimmune paleo like diet and kind of cut everything out if you want to try to find the minimal effective amount of foods to cut out you can cut out a few see how you do cut out a few more but essentially, you have to go through some kind of elimination and reintroduction of foods to try to determine what your provocating foods are. And to put it simply, if you want to start with the easier tract, or tract, sorry, tract would be pun, uh, you can start with a six-food elimination or a paleo diet. If you want to start more aggressively, you can go to the full full eight-food elimination or an autoimmune paleo diet. But you're essentially removing foods that may be irritating your system stimulating histamine, and that stimulation of histamine is causing acid. Now, there's one or two other perturbations that can be helpful. Some have theorized that small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, either through activating the immune system and the histamine that we've talked about, or because of the gases produced by those bacteria, and those gases may push that sphincter open and then allow reflux to occur. Um, so a SIBO may underlie reflux, and therefore, a lower FODMAP diet may also be helpful. So I know this sounds a little bit challenging, and but you know we don't want to just say, well, there's a couple different dietary approaches. I'm not sure which one to do, so I'm just going to take a drug. Right? It's worth going through a, a couple of short experiments to figure out which one of these diets will work well for you because most likely, if you find out which diet works well for you and you resolve your, your reflux or your heartburn, you'll likely notice other improvements. Your joints may feel looser. You may have better mental clarity. So it's it's worth the effort. Um, now, some people may a symptom is a sign that some that you right. something fundamentally is off. And if you if and it's a clue to your body to seek to identify that so that you don't get worse sim symptoms and maybe die prematurely as a result of not addressing the foundational issue. Exactly. And, and the, the adage I like to use is with medications, there's often side effects. And with cause-based treatments, there's often side benefits, mm -hmm. right? So in this case, you may have numerous side benefits. But for some people, if they, you know, they, they may have dysbiosis. That, so that SIBO is a type of dysbiosis or imbalance in the bacteria in your gut. Or there may be H. pylori. And this is where an herbal antimicrobial protocol, especially when paired with a probiotic, can be very effective. And I laid this out in the book. So if either of these syndromes were present, the book protocol will walk you through exactly how to execute. Um, so that can also be helpful. And then, and then there's one or two other things without getting too into every possible angle. Some people may benefit from what's known as a prokinetic. And Iberogas, I think, is, is the most well-studied natural prokinetic. And essentially what happens in Ibero some cases, Iberogas, yep, um, I-B-E-R-G-O-A-S-T, I, I believe. Oh, and, and we, oh, so I thought it was an Iberogas, G-A-S, but it's okay. Iberogas is a drug medication then? It's a herbal medication. Herbal it's available medication. through through our online store. 
And in the book protocol, we walk you through when to use it. Because what, what I would not recommend people do is just go out willy-nilly and buy a barrel gas because I, they heard it here. Uh, you want to use it at the right time. Many people won't need it once they've gotten the foundational factors in place. But for some people, the one of the problems that underlies the issue for them, especially when it's reflux or indigestion or dyspepsia, is the muscles that contract food downward don't work that well. And so prokinetics help these muscles contract and keep pushing the food downward. And there have been a number of studies showing clinical efficacy with Iberogast um, for this um, you know, heartburn, reflux, indigestion type syndrome. There are some other similar prokinetics out there also, but I think Iberogast for, for that application is sure. the most well studied. But how about some, something basic, physical, and inexpensive, which is inclined bed therapy, since reflux tends to bother most people at night and interfere with their ability to sleep well, just elevating the head of bed about six or sure. three, about five degrees and using physics and gravity <laughs> to assist you instead of causing problems. Agree. And then also not eating too close to bedtime also. Oh, yeah, and that that is such a profound yet simple component. And mm -hmm. the time, we didn't touch on this here, but the timing of the food and circadian rhythms. I mean, right. you have got to be seriously evaluated for mental consistency. If you are eating any big meal three hours before you go to sleep, it is a perniciously terrible health habit, not only for mm. acid reflux, but for mitochondrial health. It's like one of the worst things you can do. So, you know, that, that lays out, you know, the, the escalation of, of a few different therapies and certainly elevating your head and when you sleep and also not eating close to bedtime or, or a few other foundational pieces that are very important. Uh, and then people consider a few different dietary recommendations that I laid out before. They can consider antimicrobials. Probiotics also have at least some preliminary evidence showing to uh, the ability to assist with things like reflux and indigestion. So that's also a consideration. Um, well, and then, stop you there because you said it might confuse some people. You said antimicrobials, and, we, and that was a point I wanted to discuss with you earlier, but I'm not going to have time for it. Is anti antimicrobials are natural. Uh, herbal products, I'm sure you're referring to, not antibiotics, which is also considered antimicrobial, which will actually make things worse. And you make a brilliant point in the book about how the younger you are when you have antibiotics, the worse it's going to decimate your health. Mm -hmm. So, and maybe this is, and I'm sorry to interrupt your, your flow, but I think it's a really very important point for gut health is that these are very potentially dangerous drugs. Yes, they could potentially save your life too, but those circumstances are few and far between. And more likely, they're going to cause serious damage. And I believe they should only be used in life-threatening conditions. So, and I'm sure you've seen loads of patients, maybe a significant percentage of your patients who suffered as a result of injudicious use, use of these antibiotics. Yes, I mean, I, I would agree that we, we want to use antibiotics discriminately. I, I, I do think we can make... A, a case for the discriminant use of antibiotics for certain GI conditions. And sure. I think ref like Rifaximin is some decent. What's that? Would SIBO be one of them? Yes. Um, but it's, it's rare that we have to you know, recommend an antibiotic in our office because there are other things that work very well. But, um, you know, they, they can't, well, and also, you know, there's a work of Dr. Satish Rao, who's really pioneering work on small intestinal fungal overgrowth, mm -hmm. and he uses a prescription antifungal known as fluconazole. Um, yeah, and and so I, you know, I'm open, but here's, here's where I think herbs really trump drugs. You would need an antibiotic and a antifungal agent to get the same effect that one herb can have. 
right? So herbs have this nice effect against bacteria and fungus and also protozoa, and they tend to be a bit mild into causing some of these reactions than do the, the pharmaceuticals. Um, but I think the overarching concept here um, is we don't want to indiscriminately use antibiotics and routinely use antibiotics, A, but then also B, understand that sometimes, whether it be herbal or pharmaceutical, as long as it's a, a, you know, you've built a case for a pharmaceutical, what these antimicrobial, especially herbs, can do is it can help nudge the ecosystem of the microbiota. And what can happen is if you've been unhealthy, if you've been not eating well and your system's inflamed, inflammation tends to be poisonous to the bacteria that you want, and it tends to help the bacteria that you don't want grow. And so you can get this skewing of the colonies in your gut. And sometimes what's needed is first laying this foundation of improving the health of the host. Exercise, sleep, improve your diet. Now this colony is still skewed, but the foundation of what's holding that colony in place has now been removed. So the final step is to give a nudge to the ecosystem with the antimicrobials, and that allows the ecosystem to kind of go into this little bit of a, of a stir up. And then now that you've established these foundational health factors, it will reset to a healthier equilibrium. And, and so that's, I think, the best way to use these antimicrobials is once you've built up a foundation of a healthy host and a healthy internal environment, if someone's still symptomatic, we can give the colony a nudge, and that nudge should reset back to balance if that nudge is done in the present of healthy environmental factors. Yeah, so a nudge, not a magic bullet. <laughs> exactly. And, and you know, it's, it's one thing that I talk about in the book and this is disheartening to me. People are often looking for the magic product or the magic protocol, and they almost never find them because there is no magic protocol. But what there is is a sound process. And, and so what we lay out in the book, you know, there's no magic products or protocols, but here's a sound approach to rebuild your gut and to balance your gut health. Devoid of dogma, devoid of spin, devoid, devoid of marketing jargon, but you know, how do we use these different tools at the right place and the right time and personalize them in your gut? And if we can do that, that's where the magic happens. The magic's in the process, not necessarily in, in the product. Okay, great. So uh, one final question, uh, an important one, uh, is the appropriate use of digestive enzymes and how you would figure that out. And also, I'm particularly curious if you have any uh, clinical experience in using uh, herbal bitters as mm -hmm. a uh, alternative or an adjunct with the digestive enzymes. So um, bitters, I, I use bitters more. Um, I think bitters are great. Uh, I'm, I'm that people needing more digestive secretions becomes less important if you're well, um, you know, comp if you're if you're competent at being able to heal the gut, because the gut lining produces a fair amount of enzymes, and also if you remove inflammatory burdens, at, at least um, we could speculate that the other aspects of digestive secretion should operate more efficiently. So I've noticed less of a need for enzymatic and, and digestive support as I've you know, gotten better at healing people's guts. But I do think at least in the early phases as someone's healing and perhaps they're not producing these enzymes as robustly on their own as they should, then using a small dose of hydrochloric acid 
a little bit of bile and a blend of different pancreatic enzymes can be helpful. And with bile and pancreatic enzymes, that's where we do have a fair amount of research. And what's, I think, comforting there is it's often remarked that the test is someone's response to treatment, meaning, you know, another area where a lot of testing isn't really needed, but if someone responds positively, then that tells you that they need the enzymatic support. But there is a, a, a twist or two here. Um, so I, I said earlier that you're, as you heal your gut, you can produce these enzymes. And we see that with a number of things. We see that um, with bile, although bile is not produced by your intestines, it's produced by your liver and stored in your gallbladder. However, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth can deconjugate your bile, can kind of deactivate your bile, and that can allow you or cause you not to be able to use your bile as effectively. So you can restore someone's ability to use bile if you can get rid of the SIBO. And then also some of these enzymes that are secreted from the lining of your intestines, known as the brush border, those um, improve when someone lets their sense oh, We lost you there. When they avoid gluten. We lost you. Okay. Lost your sentences. Am I, am I back yet? Or? Give it a second. And then okay. just go back about maybe 30 seconds where you started talking about uh, bile and enzymes coming back. Okay. So if, you, if we can get rid of the, the SIBO, then we can rectify one's ability to use their bile appropriately. And then there's also these enzymes that are secreted out of the lining of the intestines. And as we heal someone's gut, they have a better ability to secrete those enzymes. So in the shorter term, enzymes can be helpful. They can also be helpful in the longer term, but I think it's for much less people because as we've healed them, they need them less. It's also important to keep in mind that for some people, especially bile, can actually function as a laxative. And when we published a case study on our website a few months ago about a patient that had SIBO, was treated for SIBO, her symptoms came back, and then she kept having problems. So she came into our office for a second opinion. And what was happening was people kept chasing around SIBO as if SIBO was the problem. Diarrhea and her abdominal pain was solely caused by a reaction to supplemental bile. And she had been taking supplemental bile. It had been irritating her gut. It had been causing diarrhea. And the only change we needed now was just to get her off of the bile. So it's, it's that important. Would be ox bile. Ox bile, yeah. Um, and there's also there's a syndrome known as bile acid malabsorption, which which causes or bile acid diarrhea. So um, bile should be secreted at the start of the small intestine, and then it, it, it kind of trickles down the small intestine, helping you absorb fats. And at the very end, known as a terminal ileum, that bile is reabsorbed. If that bile does not get reabsorbed and it makes it way its way into the colon, then it can function as an irritant as a, and as a laxative. Um, so you know it's not to say that no one should use bile, but I'm a big advocate of finding the minimal effective dose. And okay. if you find the minimal effective dose, then that I mean, prevents you from overshooting. Yeah, and fi final question uh, is the timing it takes to heal this, because my understanding is that the cells in the, in the gut, enterocytes that line the gut, they have a very short half-life. They only live a few, da a few days. Right. So, the, so because of this rapid turnover, you can see results pretty quickly. Is that your experience? Well, um, I guess it depends it on how... more related to the microbiome change? 
I, I guess it depends on how we define quickly. The 72 hours for, for you know the enterocytic turnover rate, you know that would be a little bit fast. Mm -hmm. um, but I think weeks to months is is reasonable. And and some people, you know, they respond or start responding within days, and they're fully healed within weeks. Other people start responding after weeks, and they're healed within months. And and it's likely because there's there's more going on than than just the intestinal cells repairing. There's the intestinal cells. There's a local immune system. There's the microflora and the balance of the micro microflora. And so all of these things have to kind of integrate and, and heal together. And, and some of these things feed back on each other. Um, so it seems that, you know, it, it's not something that takes years. And sometimes you'll hear these depictions. And I should mention for the audience, be careful with what you read about SIBO because some circles would have you believe that SIBO is this chronic condition that you can never heal. And I think that comes from a good place. But I think that's not true for the vast majority of people. And so the, the prognosis is much more hopeful, I think, for, for healing the gut than, than most people realize. Um, but yes, I mean, healing can occur, you know, within within weeks to months for, for the majority of people. All right, great. So uh, thank you so much for your information. And if you want more, because you really only did scratch the surface and you go into much more detail in your book. Why don't you hold up your book so that people can get an what, idea what it looks like, sure. search for it. Healthy, 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 you. healthy you. So that's the book to get if if the information by Dr. Ruscio, uh, Ruscio has uh, been you found it to be useful. Uh, I certainly did, and hope you'll consider that if you struggle with gut issues because it's a, a relatively inexpensive resource to help uh, improve your ability to heal these uh, annoying problems. And it is so common too. So thank Very you common. for the information, and we really appreciate it. Yeah, been a pleasure. Thank you.